Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear stories from a Hall of Fame broadcaster who covered President Kennedy's assassination, called the Cowboys in the Super Bowl, and the legendary Ice Bowl game between the Cowboys and the Packers, and how from a very early age, he knew the answer to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? This actually happened, and I was a kid, so just take it for what it's worth. Sure. My dad and I were listening to this guy do a baseball game, and I said, Dad, I think I could do that. <laughs> he said, well, you might as well try if you want to. But I did get the feeling of, boy, this would be great if it were real. Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. Sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball, from the sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is Hall of Fame broadcaster Bill Mercer of the Texas Rangers, the Chicago White Sox, and the Dallas Cowboys. Thanks, Bill, for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Well, thank you. It's a thrill for me because, actually, this is my first podcast ever. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so you're you're it, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try to take that responsibility seriously. <laughs> this will be the best of the worst you ever did. I don't know. It's, it's the first That's one. funny. It's my pleasure and honor to be with you, John. I've heard a lot about your program and your podcast, and I'm just uh, really thrilled to be on with you. Bill Mercer is, you can correct my counting because I've, I've run out of fingers, that you are inducted into eight Hall of Fames, including having the press club in North Texas named for you. Oh, that's right. I've been very fortunate in getting uh, journalism awards, radio awards. The press club made us legends, so my friends call me, here's the legend coming. And uh, <laughs> the last... <laughs> Yeah, the last one was the Sports Radio Award in uh, Waco at the museum there. Texas Radio so, Hall of Fame. I've been very fortunate. And then when they built a new stadium, my uh, former students got together and demanded, <laughs> or they suggested, that they name it after me because I had been there so long. So that, that was another great honor, and I have the greatest ex-students in the world, so. Because this is a baseball podcast, I want to start with baseball, but with your permission, I'm going to veer off into so many different things because your career is so amazing. So let's start with baseball, and let me ask you how you fell in love with baseball. Well, uh, back in the eon days, back in the 30s, with the old thing that he had was radio, my dad, who was a great baseball fan, and he and I would play catch out in the yard as father-sons do. But we would listen to every baseball game we could, and there were a few select stations in those days, you know, like we could get KMOX Missouri and some station way off, and whatever game was on, we listened to it. And I just fell in love with the idea of, of seeing those games in my mind and thinking, man, alive, what those guys are really something doing that. And one day, <laughs> this actually happened, and I was a kid, so just take it for what it's worth. Sure. My dad and I were listening to this guy do a baseball game, and I said, Dad, I think I could do that. <laughs> he said, well, you might as well try if you want to. So that was the first thing. And then uh, I uh, we lived on a small farm in uh, Muskogee, off Muskogee, Oklahoma. And in the summer, I got a uh, spinner baseball game. 
you know, where you flick it and it says strike or it says base hit. I remember the and uh, and so I have had that going, and uh, it got to the point where I had uh, several teams in my conference, <laughs> and I I must have played five or six games every day. I don't know how good or bad it was because I had nobody to clue me in, but I did get the feeling of boy, this would be great if it were real, and uh, that's that's how my thinking about it started in my own mind. Now, listening to uh, the old Scotchman Gordon McClendon and those recreating games, sure, which I admired mightily, and so that's that's the way it started. And fortunately, I got these uh, jobs in my hometown, and my wife taught, and we got along pretty well. Did you feel like you had really gotten into the thing that you loved when you were doing sports? Uh, yes, in Muskogee. One thing that you know, the, the recreation. You remember that? Sure. Well, that was doing the out-of-town game in your own studio. Ronald Reagan did that. To, You're in good company. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the old Scotch and Gordon McClendon, they had that Liberty Network. Mm-hmm. And I listened to them all the time, and I knew what they were doing. I didn't know exactly how they did it. But when I got the job in Muskogee, I was Western Association Class C baseball, professional baseball. And I was thrilled because now I'm going to get to do real baseball. And had to have uh, Western Union, had the uh, guy in my station and a guy, a sender in the other station, and they would uh, telegraph back and forth. And that's how I started doing uh, recreation, too. I knew you needed some noise of some kind, crowd noise. And my good friend there, who uh, was my engineer, we had one standard, one of the big old red standard records, and there was about uh, an inch and a half of crowdness on it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he had to keep moving the crowd noise back and forth. But to add some really reality to it, I found out the schedule of the trains coming through, (laughs) and uh, we did have... We did have some train noise on that thing. At exactly so the we, right time. Well, and, and sometimes he would hold it up and say, it's, it's running late tonight. And I said, well, so and so, the MK and T is running late tonight. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But I tell you, I got to tell you a little story about this because this is what solidified my, <laughs> my enthusiasm and my fact that I could really do this to a, a good degree at uh, we were in a town, I guess, Joplin, Missouri or someplace. And uh, just before I went down to the studio, I was in a grocery store and met a friend of mine. And he said, when are you going to fly up to Joplin? I said, I don't fly up there. I don't go up there. And he said, oh, I've heard, I've heard that. And I said, well, okay, yeah, I'll get there. <laughs> so we we did the game. We started the game and it went along. And I had this note from the Western Union guy that uh, a lady had been hit in the head and foul ball in the, in the right field bleachers. My so I gave it to my engineer, and uh, I said, I'm just giving you this so you know. He's been talking to him between innings. And he said, okay, that's fine. So we got down to that. Here's the pitch, swung on line drive to right field in the right field bleachers, and it looks like somebody was hit. The fans were all running around and waving. It's like they need help. The players have run over from first base. And so and so. Then I, I gave him a message that we have an ambulance coming. I've got to extend this thing. So I got to that point. I was extending and I said, it looks like they're going to have to send her to the hospital. 
And he had found an ambulance arriving and an ambulance going away cut. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so we, we got that in. Uh, never after that, my friend said, I knew you were up there. I could tell you that I'd heard that ambulance and all that. <laughs> and I thought to myself, man, this is what I have to do, even recreating it, because you can set the picture, paint the picture so well that people really see it and can enjoy it. I remember hearing Ronald Reagan talking about when he was doing Iowa or whatever team he yeah. did, he, he, when the wire went down, he had to pad right. and make up things about, you know, maybe a brawl that was going on or a rain delay <laughs> or something like that. Did that ever happen to you? Oh, yes. Many times the line would go dead and my engineer had to come check it out. In the meantime, I'd already gotten to the end of what I had and I would then make up stuff. You have to think about it when you're there in that particular town. And, uh, yeah, it happened more times than you like to think. And you had to keep going. You have to. You can't quit. Nope. I mean, there's nothing on the air if you took They'd play music, but I didn't want that. So the we would, show must go on. You know, I got uh, information from most of the towns. So I had a little sports page. And so, and I would use uh, go through that and talk about their sports. And so whatever was going on in the other community, we'd talk about that. Mm-hmm. It was a real challenge. and. Everybody who ever did that uh, knows it. One of my earliest memories of Bill Mercer, because I grew up outside the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I was in high school when the Texas Rangers came to town. And you, of course, oh, were, the, you were the original announcer for the Texas Rangers. Tell me what you remember about that time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that was really something. I had been doing the Cowboys, you know, for seven years. Then the Rangers came to town. And uh, I got the job as the first announcer. And Don Drysdale was my color man. Or my, not color, because he wanted to learn play-by-play with me. I was teaching that at uh, North Texas at the time. Oh, okay. So he, he did play-by-play and color, and we were a pretty good team. That was a wild year with Ted Williams managing. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of guys who were not... Really very good ball players. There were, you know, two or three that were good. Rich Hand was a good pitcher. Bill Gogoleski was to do something. But uh, we won 50 games that year and lost 100. So it was something to do. And we cherished every win we had because it was so much fun to have a win. I remember at the end, near the end of the season, uh, Don and I were getting the booth and he said, Bill, I said, yeah, we're 35 games out of first place. <laughs> what a- <laughs> What do we talk about? Do you think we have I a said, chance? I well, you know, <laughs> we, don't, we don't talk about the future, do we? Let's just do the game as is, as it's just a game, and we don't have to worry about where we are and what it is. He said, oh, that's good. We can do that. So that's fine. But, uh, yeah, being with him was of tremendous value to me to learn more about baseball and uh, to help him pick up and become a good play-by-play announcer. And I bet when he talked about baseball, it was uh, about pitching. I bet it was something you listened closely to because he was a great pitcher. Oh, he was a great pitcher. One time on the the charter, Ted Williams was sitting across the aisle from um, Don, and I was next to Don on the inside seat. And they started arguing over who was dumber, a pitcher or a hitter. (laughs) And I I could have recorded it if I'd had a better thinking about it better. It would have been a great interview. 
with those two guys yelling at each other, not always using proper language, but <laughs> they really had an interesting discussion on who was dumber, a pitcher or a batter, and I don't think they ever solved anything. <laughs> but that was the kind of year it was. With Ted, it was exciting because it, you never knew what was going to hit with him, you know, and uh, I really liked the guy. He was difficult and he was a good guy, and but overall, it was a, a great year to be with him, and uh, I'm very happy to have had that time with him. The next year was uh, the change. That's when uh, David Clyde was uh, brought in from the high school. I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about the Rangers' first sellout, and have you tell me that story? Yeah, uh, David Clyde was uh, one of the most amazing high school pitchers in Texas history, I guess. And fortunately, Bob Short, I don't know how he got it, but he got the rights to him and brought him in. And uh, he was a really fine kid. He was so nice. And uh, I would stand behind the batting cage and just watch him warm up and, and throw. Just to, And my gosh, that ball made a noise like a bullet going through the air. So uh, that was the first time when he pitched with all the publicity we had about him. When he pitched, as you said, the first sellout of the new uh, Dallas-Fort Worth team mm-hmm. of the Texas Rangers. And it was 1973. Was, it was the year after the debut, so they didn't have a sellout until their second year. That's right. Well, <laughs> even with the Yankees or somebody like Boston coming to town, they didn't sell it out mm-hmm. in the first year. But, uh, yeah, that second year we were padding along, and then we had the manager change. And Billy Martin came in. Well, you had had the manager uh, change from Whitey Herzog to Billy Martin. That's right. That's right. Something that I regretted, and a lot of people did, but Whitey Herzog wanted to send David Clyde down to the minors to perfect his curveball and pick up another pitch. And Bob Short, who would have none of it, he wanted to uh, exploit this phenom and take him around the league. I mean, that's the actual fact. Mm-hmm. He didn't really care about what was good for the kid. It was what was good for the team and Bob Short. So, anyway, Billy Martin went along with that. But here came the first game that David Klein was ever going to pitch in the pros. And uh, it was so good to see this old stadium, which had been kind of boosted up a little bit in attendance. So I think we had 35,000. And you had announced games in that stadium when it was a minor league stadium. That's right. From the very beginning, <laughs> from the very beginning. And uh, yeah, I, I remember that first inning when he walked the bases loaded and then struck out the side, and the place went crazy. He couldn't have done any better if he'd have written the script. Wow. And then he was he went all along, and, you know, he pitched very, very well and uh, won the ball game. It was so exciting. I mean, Dick Reisenhoover and I were together then, Don had gone off to L.A. for his real confines. Mm-hmm. So Dick Reisner and I were broadcasting together, and we we uh, had a, a great year together. But uh, the David Clyde game in baseball was my favorite that I have ever, ever done. Wow. And that uh, includes 15 years of recreating and doing minor league games. That's saying something. Yeah. Well, it, it was just a moment, you know, just a moment. As I yeah. recall, in 1973... Not only was that the Rangers' first sellout, but didn't they have to delay the game to allow people to get oh. into the ballpark because the traffic was so bad? You're right. I forgot that. That's right. 
we had to wait 15 or 20 minutes. We started the pregame show, and then they came in and said, the traffic's lined up for miles out there. We have to wait. And so we waited about 20, 25 minutes, I guess. And Dick and I, and we interviewed everybody we could find. And, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I tell you, it, that kid, 18-year-old David Clyde, just mm. grabbed the attention of this uh, base. And there there were baseball fans here then, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. I did a podcast with Tom Grieve. And one of the questions I asked him, of course, he was he was a player for the 1971 Senators. And I said to him, yeah. when did you get wind of the fact that the Senators were going to relocate to Arlington? And he says, I don't remember when it was, but none of us were very excited about it because none of us had ever been to Texas. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Those guys were all, as we would call them down here, foreigners to yeah. us. The- Tom was from New England? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, they were from everywhere, and they were basically a good bunch of guys. They used to drive Ted crazy because they wouldn't take enough batting practice and all that stuff, mm. but that was Ted. But uh, they tried hard. They just didn't have the ability to do it, and uh, that first year was a disaster, but at least we got Major League Baseball in, and then David Clyde came, and that was a great plus. I finished up just two years with the Rangers. I uh, had always wished that They'd come around and I could have stayed. But uh, at the end of the second year, the uh, head of the broadcast unit came in and talked to uh, Dick and I about uh, the future. And he said, I got to tell you, we don't have a radio station yet. And this was last week or two of the season. We don't have a radio station yet. We don't have any sponsors. We don't know if we get a station, if you guys will be picked or they'll pick their own. So my advice to you is, if you get an offer that's good and you think that it would help you, then we'll stand behind you and you can leave. Wow. Well, it coincidentally came. I think the next week I got an offer from the Chicago White Sox. And uh, it was a, a really a fabulous offer for me. It doubled the amount of money I was making in Texas. But they had a promise that in two years, when Harry Carey's contract ran out, they'd get rid of him, and I would be the number one announcer for the White Sox. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a pretty good offer. Pretty good offer. Yeah. And uh, I had four kids then and a couple in college, so I was straining every effort to try to make everything meet. So we just decided, okay, let's try it. Let's go to Chicago, and if this works out, we'll be in great shape. Well, it worked out for two years, and then they went bankrupt, and Hmm. Everything else, and that was the end of my baseball season. My I goodness. decided I'd been in a long time, including the minors, so I just went back to North Texas and taught and broadcast there and some other stuff and went to work at KVIL in Dallas. Well, there's so many things I want to move into at this transition, but there's one thing I want to kind of step back on because you talked about the 73 season for the Rangers, and I heard there was a quote, attributed to Whitey Herzog, who said that Bob Short would fire his own grandmother to hire Billy Martin, and Whitey Herzog said, I'm now Bob Short's grandmother. <laughs> yes, I, I vaguely remember that. Dear old Whitey, he was a great guy. He would have been a, a wonderful manager for this team, as he showed in after the years later. But that's right. Billy Martin was going to solve everything. 
and uh, they had some young players coming up like Jeff Burroughs and some other guys. And the team was getting better. They made some trades. But uh, Whitey was right. Bob Short would sell anything <laughs> if, if it helped his budget. Hall of Fame broadcaster Bill Mercer is so rich with stories that I simply have to do a second podcast so he can share about his days announcing wrestling, his new book, Oklahoma to Okinawa, about his military service during World War II, and the remarkable story of being face-to-face with Lee Harvey Oswald just a few days after President Kennedy was assassinated. And this reporter to my left said, have you been charged with anything? And he made some statement, no, I haven't, this is out of the internet. And then he turned and I said, yes, you have. You've been charged with the murder of the president. And he paused and said, huh? And looked at me and I said, you have been charged with the murder of the president. How's that for a tease? I hope you'll join me for part two of my conversation with the legendary Bill Mercer. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Life at the Ballpark is produced by Jim Governale. Project manager is Paul Adams. And a special thank you to former Astros broadcaster Bill Brown and the Round Rock Express's Mike Caps for introducing me to their friend and mentor, Bill Mercer. I hope you'll join me next time for part two of my interview with Bill Mercer. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of life at the ballpark. <laughs>